and welcome to Elementary, probably Manchester's best student-run science-themed radio show. I'm Fergus. I'm Karis. So today we've got Will in the studio with us. Uh, we haven't got Joe, unfortunately. He's away this week, but I'm sure we'll struggle on just with the three of us. So this week we're going to be talking all about iron. This is the most abundant element on Earth because the Earth's core is mostly made of iron, which we'll come back to a little bit later. The core also has some nickel and some other lighter elements in it as well. Rocky planets such as Earth often have a lot of iron in them because it's the heaviest element that can be formed from nuclear fusion in high mass stars. So if you think all the way back to hydrogen, we were saying the sun releases its energy from this process of fusion where small elements are fused together into heavier elements, releasing a lot of energy in the process. In high mass stars, you can fuse elements all the way up to iron, but you can't go any further than that. There isn't enough energy to do it. So you only get the heavier elements when stars collapse in on themselves in an explosive supernova. Iron has atomic number 26. Its symbol is Fe, which is from the Latin name for it, ferrum. Iron's been known about for absolutely ages. Steel is an important alloy of iron and copper. So an alloy is just kind of a mixture of multiple metals. And we'll come back to talking a little bit about some of the important uses of iron and its alloys later on in the show. It's also the first transition metal that we've looked at. The transition metal area is, if you think about the periodic table, you've kind of got the big bit in the middle. You've kind of got the two pointy bits either side and then the big bit in the middle and then the other bit on the bottom well the transition metals are the big bit in the middle electrons are arranged in shells around atoms and these shells have subshells which are called orbitals there are four types of orbitals s p d and f and transition metals are transition metals because they have partially filled d orbitals this makes their chemistry different to other parts of the table I don't know, do you guys remember learning about SPDF orbitals? I do, an A-level chemistry. But... Yeah, did you have a way of remembering them? No. I guess it's not that hard, it's only four letters. Yeah. One of my friends, I always remember, uh, had this thing he used to say, uh, spiders poo down flutes, and that was how he remembered the orders of the orbitals, which sounds a bit silly, really, but it's it's stuck in my head for a good few years, so there we go. Anyway, that's that's that. We're looking at iron today because we're having a, a Halloween-y themed episode. I know Halloween was yesterday, but that's just how the dates work. The reason why we're claiming that iron is suitable for a Halloween episode is because of its importance in blood. But we'll get to that later. Now we're going to go to Karis, who's going to talk to us a bit about iron's history. Iron was one of the elements that was actually known to the ancient world. It was used for thousands of years, and like other metals, it's strong yet malleable. And it can be wrought into shapes when heated, so obviously that's very useful. Really old iron objects, though, they're much rarer to find than gold or silver ones because iron corrodes and gold and silver don't as much. Smelting was used, which is applying heat to the ore, which is the rock um, with the iron or other elements in it. And this extracts the metals that you're looking for, in this case iron. This requires heat and a reducing agent, for example, carbon in the form of charcoal. This removes the oxygen bonded to the metal. Traces of smelted iron have been found in Syria dating back to between 2700 and 3000 BC. We've known about iron for quite a while then. Yeah, definitely. So there's different alloys you can get of iron. So cast iron, which I'm sure you've heard of, is iron mixed with 2% carbon and sometimes silicon as well. It has a low melting point, so it can be formed into the pipes and other things we use iron for. Steel, actually, is an alloy of iron and carbon as well. It's strong and cheap, so it's used in everything, basically, from buildings to weapons to vehicles. And then stainless steel as well, which cutlery is made out of. So that's with at least 11% chromium in it. The reason this is used is it's resistant to corrosion, which is rusting, which I'm sure you've all seen iron rusting, which is when it reacts with oxygen in the air. 
so it's used in surgical instruments and cutlery. Next we've got a game! Yay! It's, it's everyone's favourite science game. Science fact or science fiction. So you ready for your iron facts? I've got a goal this week to get more than one right since I've only ever got one right. Oh, I think it's because you and Joe like to go with different answers to each other because you don't want to both be right or both be wrong. So if he answers first, then you have to go for the other one. So yeah, we'll, see. we'll see how it works. First fact, or maybe not fact for you this week. As I said earlier, iron makes up most of the Earth's core. Now, that, that's a fact. I've already, I've already told you that. But my question is, is it the iron in the Earth's core that creates the Earth's magnetic field? What do you reckon? Science fact or science fiction? I reckon it's a science fact. You reckon it's a science fact. Karis? Yeah, I'm going fact as well. Both, both going fact. Do, do we know this already? Or are we just guessing? Well, I have no idea. Okay, well, it is a fact. Well done. The Earth's core has yeah. two parts. The inner core is solid, and then the outer core is liquid. And it's these moving kind of molten iron in the liquid outer core, a moving electric particles. So when metals go molten, you've got metal ions, which are positively charged, and electrons, which are negatively charged, and they kind of are free to move. And and moving electric charges create a magnetic field. So that's what creates the Earth's magnetic field. A bit of physics for you there. Wow, never knew that. Second one then. Ions are called ions because they were originally made of iron. Science fact or science. Well, not really science, but fact or fiction. I reckon it's probably fiction. Ooh. I think I'm going to agree. It seems like a bad idea to make an iron out of iron. It would have rust. Wouldn't you got rust on your clothes? Okay, so we're both going to fiction for that one. I like this, because you're wrong. That one is also true. Irons have been used from the 17th century, although metal pans with hot coals in them were used to smooth fabrics in China right back from the 1st century BC. I'm not sure what those ones were made of, but the sort of modern irons were originally made from iron. They're now made of plastic, obviously the, the outer bit, aluminium and steel, which has iron in it as well. So, yeah, so irons, basically irons irons still, yeah. still have some iron in, but they did, I think in the 17th century, they basically just got Literal a block iron, of iron yeah. <laughs> just smoothed the clothes out. There we go. So we've had two true so far. Oh, there's so much pressure on me to get the last one right I now. Know, I know. Last now you'll one. be fine. Spinach is high in iron. Science fact or science fiction? Fact. I know this because I'm anemic. <laughs> oh. Yeah, see, I, that... okay. I remember reading about this somewhere on the internet. Like, if you eat spinach, that's why, that's why they make Popeye, the sailor man. Yeah. Right? Where, he ate, yeah. where he eats, like, a lot of spinach. And, then and he gets really strong. Yeah, exactly. Okay. This one, I mm, I was kind of saying it's fact and fiction. So it has some iron in it, but not as much as you might think. You're... I've been eating spinach all these years for no reason. <laughs> no, well, no, this is why I don't want to disagree with you. So it definitely, it has some iron in it. So it has 2.7 milligrams per 100 grams. I'm not actually sure how much 100 grams of, I'm trying to f like visualize how much spinach that is. Anyway, you need 14 milligrams of day, so you'd have to eat quite a lot of spinach to get all your oh iron God. for the day. So, I mean, according to Nutritics.com, I've no idea what their credentials are. <laughs> yes, a valuable source. Yeah, yeah. so this, this is why you should maybe use your sources more carefully. They, they would class it as a source of iron, but not I in iron. And also, it's non-heme iron, so it isn't absorbed as well by your body as other types of iron. It is high in vitamin C, though, so still eat your spinach. There's way more iron in liver beef liver has 17.9 milligrams so that's quite a few times as much uh, oysters but also chickpeas have 6.2 milligrams and tofu have 5.4 milligrams per 100 gram but then i'm thinking is 100 grams of tofu like more tofu than 100 grams of spinach would be 100 gram of spinach must be a lot of spinach because spinach is quite light 
Mm. Yeah, and like you said, like liver had a lot of iron, but just to add on, so this is because like the liver actually metabolizes a lot of iron. It's responsible for all the iron metabolism in the body. So in general, there's a lot of iron in liver what in whatever animal you can find. Well, there we go. I'll give you that one. I'll say, I'll say it does because hey. you're you're more then knowledgeable about right. this area than than I am. Well, that was science fact or science fiction. Welcome back to elementary. Right now we're going to go over to Will, who's going to talk to us about blood. So I hope everyone had a good time during Halloween or whether you got out with your friends or not. But now we're moving on to blood. Everybody knows our human body contains blood, hemoglobin and myoglobin. So heme containing proteins that can be found in blood. And these uh, proteins have to kept, be kept level. And this happens because eye metabolism, like we mentioned earlier. And these are basically necessary and toxic are also toxic at the same time. And so what happened was, what happens is that um, the liver basically converts hydrogen peroxide into free radicals bound to these proteins to stop this toxicity. Moving on to hemoglobin. So hemoglobin is essentially a metalloprotein. So what's a metalloprotein? Metal-containing protein. There's a lot of metalloproteins in our body, and, and hemoglobin is just one of them. And so these are contained in red blood cells, and an iron atom is basically in the middle of four nitrogens where this heme group basically binds to oxygen and basically carries the CO2, that, but that binds elsewhere so it doesn't compete. So you've got this big protein uh, with iron in the middle of it, and then the iron attaches itself to oxygen, right? Yep. And why is that important? What does that then do? So when it comes to like respiration and where, where we breathe in oxygen, so in the lungs, when, when the oxygen reaches the alveoli, what happens is that the blood flows through it and so what happens is that the oxygen will basically bind to the blood via this hemoglobin and then it, the oxygen can be transported throughout the entire body and this is extremely important because if, if we do not have hemoglobin in our blood you essentially will die of uh, due to like deprivation of oxygen and this is why some people uh, that have like genetic issues with like their hemoglobin they end up having uh, having to basically they have problems with their blood like well, sickle cell like yeah, sickle cell anemia yeah. exactly is so, one of them so in sickle cell anemia the red blood cell is misshaped is my understanding yes of it. like a yes. sickle like a sickle oh yeah. thanks for like so they, reminding me uh, yeah. clot together like they build up together because of the way they're shaped so basically there are two types of globin chains there's an alpha chain and a beta chain so in sickle cell anemia if there's a genetic mutation in either one of these chains, what happens is that the structure will be misfolded. So the heme protein will be mis- misfolded and then they'll just clump together in, in like the blood. And so like your blood won't be functioning properly in oxygen transport. And now myoglobin, we just run through this really quickly. So it's related to hemoglobin and it's found in muscles mostly and it's responsible for the color of red meat. And it transports ox- oxygen from red blood cells to mitochondria and muscle cells for respiration. Oh, that's interesting. I'd never heard of that. So I'd heard of hemoglobin and how that carries the oxygen through the blood, but then I'd never really thought about what happens when it gets to the other side. Well, the main difference is that it can only carry one molecule at a time, but it has a high affinity because it needs to store it for use when necessary. So when perhaps your oxygen supply runs out, then then myoglobin might probably kick in. So this is important in animals which hold their breath for a long time. So animals like such as whales or seals, they have a, a larger proportion of myoglobin because they probably need it when the, when the time comes when they run out of like oxygen in general. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. the myoglobin can keep hold of the oxygen for yeah, longer. Yeah, the that's muscles. What, that's what affinity means. It means that the binding is stronger. 
really interesting. Okay, so, yeah, iron, not just important for your cutlery or your surgical instruments, also really important for getting the oxygen all around your body so that you can carry on doing things. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit to do with iron is its reactivity, because it reacts in quite a lot of different ways. It's got quite a lot of chemistry going on with transition metals, so these metals in this big block in the middle of the periodic table. Often a lot of them have quite a few electrons that can be involved in bonding rather than just sort of one or two. So this means that they can do quite a lot of different things and bind to quite a lot of different things at once. So uh, the first reaction that iron is involved in, which has already been mentioned earlier, is this, that it can be oxidised by oxygen or water. And this is what leads to iron rusting. So oxidisation is a process where something gives up electrons. So iron has spare electrons. Oxygen in oxygen gas or in water wants those extra electrons. So they take the electrons and then this forms a different compound and that's what leads to rust on the surface of iron. A different type of reaction are reactions that form organometallics. So just like a metalloprotein is a protein with metal in it, organometallics are organic compounds, so carbon-containing compounds that have metal in them as well. Organometallics are important because they're used a lot as catalysts Catalysts are species that speed up the rate of chemical reactions without being used up by the reaction. So this is very important in industry where you want to be producing as much of something as possible. Uh, or in, you know, if you're a chemist and you're in a lab, then it can mean that you can do things at lower temperatures, lower pressures, uh, you know, in nicer circumstances, basically, if you use catalysts. So they're, they're very, very important. One example of a notable organometallic is ferrocene which is an iron atom in the middle. And then above and below this, you've got a ring of uh, five carbon atoms, which each have one hydrogen sticking off them. The compound, so you've got Fe and then C5H5 and two lots of those all together. So that's, that's what it looks like if you kind of write it down. It's quite a complicated one, probably the most complicated molecule that we've talked about. But this is called a sandwich compound because if you think about the shape of it, you've kind of got these two rings of carbon with an iron in the middle. It kind of looks a little bit like a sandwich, I guess, yeah. on, the, on the molecular level. See, so you've got these two rings, one above and one below. And there's a whole range of sandwich compounds. This is a particularly notable one, and this one is kind of used as like an archetypical example of a sandwich compound. Just like a quick question. So what is ferrocene actually used for? So that's that's a good question. Um, I was I was struggling to find a lot of things that it itself can be used for. But it Nothing, is, it's just I fun because it's sandwich-shaped. I, I think it is used <laughs> for, th it's used as a teaching method in undergraduate chemistry. But <laughs> As an uh, example of like a sandwich. It's very stable, so it's unaffected by air and water, so unlike so that the air and water don't get to the, the iron, basically, or they don't react with it, unlike if you've got pure iron. They are strong bases in general, so bases kind of the opposite of, of, of acids. It can be heated to 400 degrees Celsius without decomposing, and its discovery kind of kick-started the growth of organometallic chemistry. So I'm sure it does do things by itself, even if I can't tell you what any of them are. But even if not, it kind of... When it was discovered, this kind of kick-started this interest in these organometallics. And as I say, there's loads of organometallics and lots of them are used a lot as catalysts. Hello and welcome back to Elementary. And now we will have some 
science in the news great yeah so it's the return of the in the news segment where we look at some of the science going on in the news before we do that i did do a quick google in the break and ferrocene does have uses as well as just being used to teach me what a cyanide compound is so ferrocene and its derivatives so similar compounds made from ferrocene are used as anti-knock agents in fuel for petrol engines and there's also a lot of research going on for uh, medicinal applications of ferrocene uh, to do with uh, treating cancer. So there we go. Anti-what agents? What is that? Oh, anti-knocking agents. So basically knocking is a thing that happens in engines where parts of the fuel that aren't... where the main flame is going and the main bit of fuel is meant to ignite, but then you get little pockets that sometimes explode in other areas. So this is bad for the smooth running of the engine. So it basically just makes things run smoother. So it does have a use. Exactly. I said I thought it would. I just hadn't googled what it was so there we go time for in the news now so the first bit of news that i wanted to talk about was actually a bit last week but i just think it's absolutely lovely so this is the news that some rats have been taught to drive tiny cars so that they get less stressed so these uh, were some researchers at the university of richmond in the u.s They didn't have a particularly large sample size, it was just 17 rats, but they taught these rats how to drive these tiny little cars. So basically there was an incomplete circuit and the rats would learn to press down on something that would complete the circuit and then they'd be able to move the car in the direction that they wanted it to go in. So they could steer. Well, yeah, yeah, they could could steer it and they could make it go and not go. What the researchers who led the study then did was they then tested the rats for a, well, actually the rats' feces for both a stress hormone and an anti-stress hormone. And they all had higher levels of this anti-stress hormone. And the scientists' conclusion was that this might be linked to the satisfaction of having learned a new skill. So the rats were really pleased with themselves. For well, maybe I should to learn to drive. It'll make <laughs> me less stressed. <laughs> Driving is yeah. enjoyable, I'll say that. So, so learn to drive to be less stressed. But no, the, the idea was more generally not necessarily yeah. driving specifically, but learning a new skill can help boost your mood. The idea is that this might have applications for diseases such as schizophrenia or depression, those sorts of things. It might be you know, linked to ways of helping to, to treat those to persuade the rats to do it they gave them cereal um if they drove it correctly and i'd be interested to know whether there's a difference between the different cereals that you give them maybe if you give it cocoa yes. pops then it'll learn to drive quicker than if you give it conflict that's I mean, it's important research probably probably not like actual cereal i'm being a bit silly there but still i mean i could imagine like being one of like the research scientists in the lab and someone asks you oh what is your research oh i teach rats how to drive anyone else got any science in the news that they want to chat about well not exactly sciencey but <laughs> related don butler who is the shadow secretary for women and equalities made a statement that 90 percent of giraffes are gay which is not really true scientifically so giraffes can't really be gay or most animals can't really be gay because they don't mate they don't really have sexual orientation they mate to have children not for a relationship with some exceptions mostly birds penguins swans what other animals make for life i mean i'm more interested as to how they got the number uh, apparently just there's just out of thin air 90 percent of giraffes so, it might be like 90 percent of giraffes like engage in homosexual behaviors so what were these behaviors that she was referring to then same sex necking licking nuzzling and mounting right okay but this isn't necessarily a, a mating thing no either is it usually between 
male giraffes it's a dominance thing and for other animals as well dogs so like when a dog comes in and humps your leg or yeah whatever, they're not actually trying to mate with you necessarily. no okay so giraffes might not be gay there are there are other animals so penguins though you mentioned because they do yes. mate for life don't they and you will and sometimes you do get have same-sex penguin relationships yeah yeah and they steal eggs sometimes they for do. All, well not so always ste- so i think terrible sometimes they oh. sometimes they nick them and i've heard but sometimes also an egg might they be abandoned them, for whatever yeah. and then they'll go and then they'll look after that egg and then they'll treat that as their own, which is quite so cute, cute, actually. So giraffes aren't gay, but some penguins are. I've got one more piece back to research again, and this is to do with technology. So this is the story that electric cars might be able to be charged in 10 minutes in future. So this is obviously good because I think one of the big barriers for greater adoption of electric cars is that they take quite a long time to charge and they have to be charged you know semi-regularly so you were going on a long journey you wouldn't necessarily be able to get all the way there so i mean part of the problem is an infrastructure problem that there needs to be more charging points at more service stations or whatever but then also the the fact that batteries obviously at the moment they take a little while to charge up i mean a lot less now than they used to and also the cars can go for more miles than they used to do you know i i think it's i mean no, I, I don't want to say, but more than 10 minutes. Okay. I don't know. In my mind, they take kind of how long a phone takes, but I've no idea if that's actually accurate or not, having never owned an electric vehicle. I've tried, it. like, hybrid vehicles, like, sitting one of them. It was kind of cool. There's no sound when the engine turns on. It literally just turns on, and then you can just drive. It's yeah. pretty It's pretty interesting. I think I've heard that some of them have sort of engine noises added to them. Yeah, because it's them. really dangerous to mm. not hear cars for, like, pedestrians and things like that. So they add noises so people can hear them. Anyway, so the way that these new batteries would work, basically the problem with lithium-ion batteries, so I don't know if anyone remembers last time we talked about in the news, we were talking about the scientists who were awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for the development of the lithium-ion battery. So lithium-ion batteries, fantastic, but they are a problem because they can't be charged really fast because if you charge something really fast, you need to use a high current but if you do this, even at quite low temperatures, this can cause metallic lithium to form in spikes around the anode, and then this stops the charging from happening. So that's a problem with batteries as they currently are. If you used higher temperatures, then this would allow the ions to move fast enough that they wouldn't form into these metallic spikes. However, having batteries really hot causes its own problems. So these are the kind of technical challenges that the scientists were trying to look at in there in their study yeah but now like fast charging does exist for like certain mobile phones my phone claims to do fast charging but it's it doesn't it will i'll plug it in and it'll say fast charging for about a second and then it'll just go down to normal charging but i've had it for a few years so maybe that's why well that was in the news now it's the time to do any shout out so either, either of you got any shout outs i've got one so that my shout out is that you should all go and register to vote if you haven't yes. yet. So there, there is going to be an election. It's going to be on uh, December the 12th, which is a Thursday, which is right at the end of term, basically. Day after my birthday. Woo. Oh, that's exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Happy birthday. Here's, here's a new government. Yeah, basically. This is important, it being at the end of term time, because you might be still in Manchester or you might be at home. You can register to vote in both places. 
you obviously can't vote in both places you can only vote once but you can register to vote in both and then you know wherever you're going to be on the day then you can go and vote there or like me if you might not actually be either at home or in manchester because i'm going to see some friends on that day then you can also apply for a postal vote so everyone if you've not already please register to vote do it now it takes about five minutes it's really simple so easy it's necessary you have to i'm going to be reminding you every week up until whenever the deadline is so that that was that was that shout out will there even be a deadline well we'll just remind you every week (laughs) you might just carry on just register just just do it that's pretty much everything then so i hope you've enjoyed learning about iron today thanks very much will for coming on you're welcome yeah i hope you hope you've enjoyed it even though it's been a little bit um uh, hectic hectic that's a good word i was gonna say what do they use on bake-off it looks slightly informal i do not watch bake-off don't you oh no i feel so left i feel like everyone does but it's so boring All sorry right. everyone hates me now. they've got certain words that they use if they want to say that the cake or whatever looks sloppy but they don't want to say that because it's mean then they'll say other things um so i think informal is one that's you so we've had a slightly yeah. informal show today anyway i hope you've still enjoyed it i hope you've learned something useful about iron and we'll be back next week learning about a poisonous element that was quite popular as a murder weapon Very for quite fun. a while in the past so make sure to come back for that like us on facebook if you haven't already we're elementary fuse fm if you've got any comments queries suggestions then you can chat to us on facebook or you can email us the old-fashioned way at elementary underscore fusefm at outlook.com. But that's all we've got time for today. I'm Fergus. I'm Karis. I'm William. And this was Elementary. Have a great day.